The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, let us continue where we left off uh, before the meal. And uh, so we have just seen the kind of the prelude to this sutta, the starting out point. And now we're going to see the meeting between this Brahmin, Janusoni, and the Buddha and see what happens when they meet to see if there are any fireworks <laughs> or whatever happens. So thank you so much. That's marvelous. Very good service. You get coffee straight to your seat. <laughs> so, um, uh, yes. So this is what happens next. And then the Brahmin Janusoni went up to the Buddha and exchanged greetings with him. And when the greetings and polite conversation were over, he sat down to one side and informed the Buddha of all that they had discussed. Yeah, so the, uh, this is kind of a standard beginning of when the Buddha has a conversation with somebody. And it's always nice to note that they always start off by exchanging greetings and having a polite conversation. Yeah, how are you? And so they kind of feel at ease. And they're not too kind of strict and severe with each other. They're friendly with each other. It's an important point because when we are friendly with each other, we can relax, right? If we are too severe and too harsh, then it's difficult to relax. And if you can't relax, you can't really listen to the Dhamma if you're uptight or you and all these kind of things. So it's important to be friendly. And the Buddha was clearly friendly in this way. So he tells, Janusona tells the Buddha what happened. And when they had, he had spoken, the Buddha said to him, Brahmin, the simile of the elephant's footprint is not yet complete in detail. As to how it is complete in detail, listen and pay close attention. I will speak. Yes, sir, Janusoni replied, and the Buddha said this. So, um, we have just seen how the... Um, previous person, Pilotika, he was kind of relying on faith. Yeah, he was just looking at the Buddha and saying, well, it looks good, so it must be enlightened, but it wasn't really knowledge. He didn't actually know for himself that the Buddha was enlightened. So now the Buddha is obviously going to complete this simile to kind of take it all the way to knowledge and understanding. Yeah? And he always, in many suttas, the Buddha says exactly this. He says, listen and pay attention. I will speak. Yeah? In other words, uh, now is the time to be ready. If you're ready now, you listen to this, you're going to have some great benefit as a consequence. Uh, so he always kind of asks his audience to listen, which is kind of, even that little detail is interesting, I find. So this is what the Buddha said. Suppose that an elephant tracker were to enter an elephant wood. There they would see a large elephant's footprint, long and broad. A skilled elephant tracker would not yet come to the conclusion this must be a big bull elephant. Why not? Because in the elephant wood there are dwarf she-elephants with big footprints, and this footprint might be one of theirs. I think dwarf here means like maybe a she-elephant that is a bit kind of misshapen perhaps so she has kind of funny features she has kind of large footprints i'm not sure exactly why it's dwarf but that uh, seems to be fairly close to the meaning of the pali so um, you never know yeah you might get people in the same way people who are teachers uh, who may seem very impressive uh, but actually they're just dwarfs <laughs> it's like a teacher who is doesn't have the spiritual stature the spiritual kind of height or or you know it's actually they're, they're spiritual dwarfs instead maybe the similar kind of idea is what is meant here you have to be careful because appearances can deceive sometimes uh, and you want to make sure that the, it's solid all the way to the bottom uh, you don't want to miss out on the real dhamma so because of that uh, then uh, they keep following the track until they see a big footprint again, long and broad, and high up signs of usage. 
it's a slightly strange way of putting it, but the idea is the, I think the way Bikibodi tries that is that there's like scraping high on the tree, yeah? So there's, there's um, in other words, the elephant has used his tusks or whatever to get some bark off the tree or pull some branches off or whatever. There's a sign that, you know, something has happened with the tree, yeah? Um, a skilled elephant tracker would, wouldn't yet come to the conclusion that this, this must be a big bull elephant. Why not? Because in an elephant wood there are tall she-elephants with long trunks and big footprints. And this footprint might be one of theirs. Yeah, so don't know, uncertain. Nothing, nothing is really sure until you can really see it with your own eyes. So be careful with your conclusions. They keep following the track until they see a big footprint, long and broad and high up, signs of usage and tusk marks. A skilled elephant tracker would not yet come to the conclusion this must be a big bull elephant. Why not? Because in an elephant wood there are tall and fully grown she-elephants with big tusks, with big footprints, and this footprint might be one of theirs. Yeah, so the idea here is that you keep on adding to the evidence. Yeah, you keep on watching, you keep on building things up. And in reality, what this means is that, for example, if there is a teacher, yeah, you look at the teacher, you observe them. We find many suttas about that, or at least two suttas about that. The famous Vimangsaka Sutta in the Majjhimanikaya 47, uh, which talks about how the Buddha says, watch me, yeah, look at me, uh, investigate me. Do I have the marks of someone who is fully enlightened? Uh, do we have the qualities of someone who is fully enlightened? The Buddha is inviting you to investigate him. Uh, this is quite powerful in the history of religion, uh, yeah, that the Buddha, the leader of religion says, watch me and you will find the things you look after. And, and, and of course, the implication is that if you don't find those things, uh, you should reject the teacher. Yeah? If you see bad behavior or the wrong kind of behavior, that is grounds for rejecting a teacher. Uh, but it's very unusual in the history of religion for a teacher to say to his students, you should investigate me to know if I'm worthy of your faith and confidence. And you have a similar teaching in the Chanki Sutta, Chanki is Majjhimanikai 95, where the Buddha says, if you're choosing a teacher, you should watch them first, yeah? and you should observe if they have the qualities that they are worthy of that respect, worthy of that confidence. So, so this is all. Uh, and this is a similar kind of thing we're doing here. And as you observe a teacher, uh, as you see who they are, uh, over time you get a feeling for whether they are the real deal or not. Uh, are they consistent in their conduct? Uh, are they consistently kind? Uh, are they sometimes, do they get really upset and angry? Uh, are they greedy sometimes? Or are they kind of fully on the path of renunciation? Uh, what are they? This should be someone who has a lot of good qualities uh, if you are, you know, an arahant or whatever. Uh, and then that's the first part of collecting evidence. The second part of collecting evidence is in your own practice to see that the path works. Yeah, if does it work? This idea of sense restraint. If I hold back on getting angry, if I can, I, am I able to do that? Am I able to become less defiled as a person? Am I able to reduce my desires? And you watch what happens inside of you over time, and you see if you become a more balanced, cool kind person over time, the developing of metta and compassion. Are these things coming, growing or not? And if they are growing, you know the path is working. And if they're not growing, well, don't reject the path too quickly. Ask yourself if there's something maybe you have misunderstood, first of all. Is a different way of looking at this that will help me to grow in these qualities? I don't know about you, but I have found that this path works really well, but you have to be inquisitive and you have to inquire and you have to be honest with yourself uh, and then there is this sense of growth over time so this is what this is about yeah so you keep on watching but, but all of this time you can still not come to the conclusion because still you're only collecting evidence and then towards the very end they keep on following the track until they see a big footprint long and broad and high up signs of usage tusk marks and broken branches 
and they see that bull elephant walking, standing, sitting or lying down at the root of a tree or in the open, then they would come to the conclusion, this is that big bull elephant. When you see the big bull elephant with your own eyes, when you abandon the the defilements of the mind fully, yeah, and you become a stream mentor or ideally an arahant, then you know for sure that the Buddha is enlightened. Not before that. Actually, when you are a stream mentor is sufficient, but when it becomes an arahant, it's even more solid, I suppose. Only then do you know for yourself. So uh, that is the simile of the uh, elephant tracker. Huh? And of course, now what we're going to do, the Buddha is going to uh, show how the simile works in real life, how, how it is reflected in our practice uh, as Buddhists, as Buddhist monastics, uh, how this whole path works from the beginning, yeah, from the moment you start to see the first elephant footprint in the wood uh, until you see that bull elephant. Naga is the Pali word. And as I mentioned before, the word Naga means like a big bull elephant, but it also means any kind of big being, any kind of really impressive being. So the monks, and maybe the nuns too, maybe the nuns were called Nagas, I'm not sure, but the monks and were called Nagas, like Venerable Sariputta or the Buddha, they were Nagas, like big creatures. So uh, I don't know if that was used for women, but if there were enlightened women, they would have should have the same title of Naga, maybe Nagini or something like that, <laughs> the fem- feminine version of <laughs> Naga. <laughs> So um, uh, let's see how the uh, how it comes out. How the Buddha then applies the simile to what actually happens in in real life. So it starts off in the same way, Brahmin, a realized one. This is the Tathagata. Yeah, rises in the world, a perfect and fully awakened Buddha, accomplished in conduct and knowledge holy knower of the world, supreme guide for those who wish to train, teacher of gods and humans, awakened and blessed. So um, the Tathagata arises in the world, right? This is the beginning of the very starting point. And um, what does it mean that the Tathagata arises in the world? This is kind of, it sounds a bit sort of uh, Mystical, when it's put in that way, the Tagata arises in the world. It's like a phoenix arising from the ashes. You know the story, this ancient Greek mythology, the idea of the bird phoenix arising from the ashes. It's like there's a, you know, an old, I think the idea is the old, I looked this up in Wikipedia because I wasn't entirely sure of the mythology. So the old phoenix dies, you know, burns up, and the new phoenix arises from that, kind of like, almost like magic. So what does it mean that the Tagata arises in the world. Uh, it's not really mystical at all. Yeah, It is a very kind of natural process. And um, one of the things about this uh, Buddha arising in the world, uh, it's, uh, there's a very big distinction between how this is described in the suttas and how this is explained in the kind of broader or later mythology of Buddhism. In the later mythology of Buddhism, the idea of a Buddha is someone who practices for many eons. Yeah, It's the idea of someone who makes a commitment under a previous Buddha, usually the Buddha Dipankara, yeah? 24 Buddhas ago or whatever it is. And uh, so he makes a commitment or he makes a determination at that time that he wants to become a Buddha in the future. And according to this mythology, at that time, the Buddha Gautama was called Sumedha. And the Sumedha makes in this determination, I will become a Buddha in the future. And this is a very developed mythology in Buddhism. And eventually, of course, we get the whole of Mahayana Buddhism, which is almost based on that mythology. Yeah? The idea of bodhisattvas and all of these kind of things. But what is interesting is that there is nothing like that in the suttas. Yeah, there's no nowhere in the suttas does the Buddha say that I, you know, I come from this uh, unfathomable past. Uh, I made a commitment a long, long time ago to become a Buddha. There's nothing about that in the suttas. Uh, there's nothing even in the suttas where the Buddha says, uh, "I will become enlightened out of compassion for all beings." Uh, that is not even in the suttas. Uh, yeah, so it, all of that is missing, uh, which is kind of very fascinating. Yeah. And one of the things that you do find in the suttas, that what motivates the Buddha 
to, or the Buddha to be, I should say, to become the Buddha. The motivation is not compassion for people. Yeah, he didn't care about us. <laughs> and it, it's obvious in a way why he didn't have that compassion, because how can you have compassion and care for others before you know what you are looking for? First of all, you have to figure it all out. You have to understand that there is a solution. You have to find the path before you can start to have compassion for others and say, I'm going to help them. Maybe I have nothing to say. If you have nothing to say, how can compassion arise? So the Buddha, what instead what you find in the suttas, and this is very clear in the suttas, especially in the suttas like the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, which is the Sutta on the Noble Search, which is the Buddha's autobiography on how he practiced, how he was thinking before his awakening and his whole practice and how he eventually became the Buddha. It's very clear there, the Buddha says, I looked at the world and, you, and I saw, and one of the things he says there is that I see myself attaching to all of these things that are impermanent, that are not going to die. Yeah, I'm getting a wife, children, cattle, and he kind of he sort of makes a long list of all the things that people attach to in the world, gold and silver, what have you. All of these things are subject to death and endings and, and impermanence, just in the same way as I am subject to these things. Yeah, so he's, he calls that the ignoble search. It's ignoble because I'm searching for more stuff. I already have the problem of dying. I'm searching for more stuff that has exactly the same problem. I'm multiplying a problem that is already there. Why on earth do I do that? That's ignoble. It's silly. It's no solution to be found by looking for those things. And then the Buddha says, I should look somewhere else. I should look for the freedom from death, the elimination of all these problems in life. That is what I should be looking for. That is the noble search. Instead of looking for other things, I have the same problem. And this is how the Buddha thinks. And this becomes the motivating factor for the Buddha. There's other suttas, like one of my nice favorite little suttas, which I usually often uh, read out on retreats, is the Sukkuma, Sukkumala Sutta, found in the Guttara 3s, 39, I think, where the Buddha talks about his, also his motivation for going forth. And he says, you know, this is the famous story of the sick person, the old person, and the dead person, yeah? But here it is more realistic. It's actually the Buddha thinking about these things rather than seeing them outside the palace, which is kind of a later mythology. And then he, this again is what motivates him to go forth, to become the Buddha, to practice, to go off into the forest and find a solution to death. <laughs> Something very beautiful about that, yeah, because uh, the idea of kind of going off into the jungle, going off to the forest uh, to find a solution to the problem of death uh, is kind of audacious, uh, yeah, it's kind of awesome. When you hear that, you think, wow, this person is really somebody special. How can anyone just go off into the forest to find a solution to death? Uh, how many, how many times do you hear about people here in Melbourne just walking off into the bush and say, yeah, I'm going to find a solution to death? Uh, you think they're crazy if they said that, right? You think you write them off and you kind of lock them up into some kind of asylum because this person clearly is nuts. Because uh, it doesn't make any sense. But this is essentially what the Buddha does, right? Uh, this is very powerful. Uh, and of course, the amazing thing about the Buddha to be, he does find that solution. This is kind of what is so awesome about the Buddha. So this is what the Buddha does. And then he goes and does all these things and he through practice, through certain teachers, eventually, I will talk maybe more about this later on, he does realize that awakening experience whereby he makes an end of suffering in this world. That is the arising of the Buddha. There's no incalculable eons. There's no kind of magic going on in the past. There's none of this kind of stuff. It is focused on this present life. The Buddha realizing there's a problem going forth and becoming awakened, motivated by the suffering of life. Then when he has reached awakening, when he has seen the problem, he knows he has a solution. Then his compassion for humanity arises because now he has a solution. That's when compassion makes sense, yeah? Wait a minute, I found a solution. Okay, maybe I should teach people. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. It kind of holds together when you look at it that way. Yeah. So the Buddha arising in the world just means that there sometimes uh, there is a person through accumulated merit, accumulating good qualities of the mind, they have the ability 
They have enough wisdom to be able to make this kind of breakthrough. Uh, this is really what it means. Uh, yeah, so every now and again in human history, incalculable history, this is not just known human history, this is kind of history going back as long as you like. Every now and again there is a person who accumulates enough qualities to be able to do this and to penetrate the truth and to see reality for what it actually is. You could say the Buddha is like a natural phenomenon. Yeah, every time nature comes together. Remember, there's no self here, right? And there's no self, we're all natural phenomena. Yeah, I'm a natural phenomenon, you're a natural phenomenon. Huh? The Buddha is a natural phenomenon. Yeah, we're all natural phenomena. We're just kind of part of this world. We think that we are something special. Actually, not that special at all. We're just kind of this uh, natural phenomena moving around in, in, in well, it happens to be in Melbourne or in Perth or wherever. Huh? And uh, it's kind of a nice way of thinking about yourself. Yeah, there's this natural phenomenon here. So uh, there's this natural the world comes together in such a way that the Buddha is produced. Yeah? It's just kind of this event that happens every now and again. And that's why there will always be new Buddhas in the future. And there have always been Buddhas in the past. Because that's what nature does. It creates Buddhas every now and again. That makes sense? You <laughs> yeah. Kind of, it's, I think it's a very nice way of thinking about it because uh, it takes away this kind of idea that you have in other religions. There's God, someone special, right? Uh, and uh, God is there and then he kind of, Jesus comes along. Yeah, and if you don't believe in Jesus, you're in trouble. And all those people who live before Jesus, well, they have, they're kind of, they have no chance. Uh, there's something, f I don't know, there's something to me anyway, something kind of strange about that. Uh, yeah, all of these people who lived, happen to live in the wrong country, who happen to be living at the wrong time, uh, they have no chance. Uh, but this here, this kind of one special point in history, and we happen to be those special people because Jesus was born just when we are alive. Yay, we are special. If you think you're special, there's a problem right away, right? Uh, because being special, why should we be special? We, should not, we are just human beings on this planet just like everyone else. Is there any reason why kind of we should be special and the Savior, Jesus Christ, is born just when we are around? There's something very suspicious about that. Yeah? There's almost like this appealing to our ego to say we are special and then you believe in this idea and then you are saved. You happen to be the lucky few who are saved. I find that's all of that kind of real for me. It doesn't gel, it doesn't really work at all. I find it really weird. And this is why it is so nice to think of the Buddha as a natural phenomenon. These are things that come and go. There's nothing special at all. Yeah, it's just kind of the world turning around, moving on, on and on and on. And every now and again, you happen to, the Buddha arises, then the path arises again. And we have probably been Buddhist before, under other Buddhas. We wasted the opportunity. Yeah, now we have the opportunity to really take it all the way. So this, to me, is a much more acceptable way of thinking about the world. The Buddha arises. This is what it means. Nothing supernatural about it. Just phenomena coming together here. So, what about this Buddha? So, this Buddha is, the first quality here is perfected. And the word perfected here is arahang, yeah, or arahant. And uh, the, the literal meaning of this word is like worthy, yeah, this is kind of what it means literally. But uh, of course, the way it is used in the suttas, it means someone who has taken the path all the way to the end. So perfected is, I think, a good translation because it means this idea of someone who's fully awakened. But uh, the idea of worthy is still a nice word. Yeah, worthy. What does it mean to be? Why is someone worthy? What what is what lies behind that? What are they worthy of? Uh, and uh, what they are worthy of, you find this in the usual, um, the usual, uh, uh, the, uh, the 
definition of the Sangha, yeah, the way the Sangha is explained in the suttas, where we say the ahuneyo, pahuneyo, dakineyo, anjali karaniyo, yeah, that's the exp- that's what it means to be worthy. What we're worthy of, we are worthy of being of uh, anjali, yeah, reverential salutation, worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, yeah. This is kind of the thing they're worthy of, worthy of respect, I suppose. Uh, yeah, so this is kind of the idea of worthy here. They're worthy of kind of our support, if you like, if someone is an arahant. And why are they worthy of these things? Well, they're worthy of these things because they are just like a teacher. Any teacher is worthy of support because the teacher is something we can use. The Buddha is the one who teaches us the highest thing that you can teach anyone in the world. And because they teach, because they give you the highest gift that is possible, they give you access to real happiness. They give you access to the end of suffering. They give you access to the very meaning of life. Because the Buddha gives you that, the Buddha in return is worthy of our support. Yeah, Because they give us the highest gift, we support them in return. That is the idea. So when you think about that, it's a kind of it's a good deal for us, right? The Buddha gives us the best, and we give him a little bit back in return. Okay, we will do Anjali for you if you teach me the Dhamma. It's kind of a good deal, isn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is the idea. So it's important to remember that that what the Buddha provides is the highest kind of teaching, yeah? because any teacher gives you things that helps you to survive and live and therefore gives you access to a degree of happiness, etc. The Buddha gives you that to the highest extent. So the Buddha is worthy, perfected. Uh, fully awakened Buddha, Samma, Sambuddha. Yeah, so um, fully awakened, the, the word awakened here, Buddha, yeah, the idea of uh, uh, seeing things like you're coming out of a kind of a sleep, yeah, not having, not seeing things clearly beforehand, or coming out of the darkness. Sometimes enlightenment is used. The idea of light being turned on, yeah, enlightenment. This is what the Buddha is about: waking up to the truth, uh, coming out of the delusion, waking up from the delusion, and then seeing things clearly. Yeah. Accomplished in knowledge and conduct, vidya, chadana, sampanno. So you will notice that what we are doing now, we're doing this standard chant that we did here yesterday, the itipiso bhagava arahang, samma sambuddho vidya, chadana sampanno, sugato loka vidya. This is what we're looking at here now. And um, this is a very important a paragraph in the suttas. You find it in many, many places. And sometimes the Buddha explains how we should remember the Buddha. Yeah, if we should remember the Buddha, how should we do that? And the Buddha says, this is how you should reflect on the Buddha. So if you want to do Buddha Nusati, this is how you do Buddha Nusati. Yeah. But uh, to be able to really do the Buddha Nusati, you have to do more than just read the words. You can think of these words, okay, uh, you know, <laughs> accomplished in knowledge and conduct, holy, knower of the world, and you, think, and you think about that. But you think about it too superficially. You don't really think about what it really means. And if you think about it too superficially, it doesn't really do anything to you. The idea is for these things to sink in in a deep way. And what we really want the Dhamma to do is to have an emotional impact. And the idea is to feel these things, uh, because it is we are driven by emotions. We're not really driven by the intellect. The intellect is kind of cold. It is emotions and feelings that drive us as human beings. Uh, so you want these things to have an emotional impact. You want to feel almost what the Buddha is like. Yeah, yeah you want, what does it mean to meet this kind of person? Uh, what are they? Uh, and then it starts to have an impact. So for this reason, it's important to try to draw out the meaning of this kind of statement, especially because the Buddha says, this is how we should think about the Buddha. So accomplished in knowledge and conduct, what does that mean? What does knowledge mean? And the Pali word vidya, it can mean knowledge in a very broad sense. Yeah, it can mean any kind of knowledge really, but traditionally in Buddhism it means the te vidya, the three knowledges, which are the knowledges of rebirth, the knowledges of kamma, if you like, yeah, and the last one, the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. Yeah, these are kind of the three knowledges in Buddhism. 
So this is one of the defining characteristics of the Buddha. He had the three knowledges there. And of course, one of those is the idea of rebirth. This is what defines the Buddha, that he understood rebirth. Just discussing this this morning, whether rebirth is important or not, whether it really matters. Uh, yeah, or and here it is actually one of the mo- one of the fundamental defining characteristics of the Buddha is the idea of rebirth. It's not actually mentioned here directly, but it's very strongly implied. And as you go through the suttas, you see this everywhere. The idea of rebirth is absolutely fundamental to these Buddhist teachings and fundamental to what it means to be a Buddha. This is one of the things the Buddha sees. Yeah, rebirth. So because it is so fundamental, and later on in the sutta we will see that not only uh, is it found here, but it also found at the very end of the path, and very often it is put aside. These things are kind of uh, are given the same kind of depth of uh, of import, or same kind of importance. The idea of rebirth, of kamma, and understanding the four noble truths. Yeah, they are kind of put side by side. They are equally important. The Buddha says it's like the chick breaking out of the shell. It's one of those beautiful similes you find in the suttas. The chick is inside the shell, then the chick chick breaks out, and that is like seeing rebirth. Very powerful, right? Because inside the shell, how much do you see? You don't see you don't see very much inside the shell. Yeah, you see this wall around you. You think, oh, this is the whole world. You don't know no idea what goes beyond. And then you open the shell and you think, whoa, I wish I wasn't, I wish I never came out. Yeah, this is too scary. Look at this world outside. Look at all those uh, cars and skyscrapers and people who are going to step on me at any time because you're a little chick. You're very fragile. Uh, imagine coming out of that shell. You thought that this was the whole world. And that is what it's like to see rebirth. It's like we are in the shell of the present life. It's like we are trapped in the present life. All we see, what is immediately around us. And one day we break out of that shell and we're like that chick. Wow, this is the reality. Reality is kind of scary if we see what is going on outside. This is how important it is because it gives you a completely different vantage point. It gives a very different feeling for what existence is about. And only when you understand existence in the right way can you make good choices about that existence. Is it worthwhile? Is it dangerous? Am I, what, what's going on here? So it is fundamental. And I think that um, those people who say that rebirth doesn't really matter, we can still live a good life, we can still be moral even though there's no rebirth, etc. I think that they miss out on, not only miss out, they completely misunderstand the Dhamma, what it really is about. It's complete distortion of the Buddhist teachings. And these things are very, very important to bring into our life and to have a degree of faith at the very least in these things. And uh, this is where I said before, sometimes our contemporary society has too much hubris. Uh, yeah, we are too, we think that, yeah, yeah, you know, this ancient superstitions, but actually very often our own society has a very great limits to it. Uh, there are many things that we have no idea about. I think these are the kind of things that, you know, where Buddhism is far more advanced than our modern society, where we don't really understand what is going on. Uh, and uh, it's kind of interesting if you look a little bit at what is happening in the world of science and philosophy, there is a big movement, uh, yeah, or the beginning of a movement of taking the mind seriously again, uh, both in science and in philosophy. Uh, and the mind being taken seriously means that we are kind of changing the ideas that have existed in science and philosophy for in the Western world for a century or so, uh, where everything has been kind of made into matter, everything is a product of matter, that is changing very fast. Uh, so, and I think, I don't know, to me it looks like within a few years or decades uh, we're going to have a very different worldview in the Western world as well. In many traditional Buddhist countries you already ha- don't have too much of this kind of view, perhaps that's good. Uh, but in the West we have been trapped in this kind of physicalist, materialist view where everything emerges from matter and you lose the idea of mind and spirit as important. And that's kind of terrible. And I think that is uh, changing very, very fast. So we should not be afraid sometimes of taking a stance on these other Buddhist values. 
you know, sometimes the world is wrong and that's, uh, that's good and we can take a stance on that and we can hold on to those values even though they may appear to be against some of the modern ideas because they are fundamental to the Buddhist out outlook. Rebirth and Kamma are really, really fundamental. They constitute the knowledge of the Buddha. Yeah? Three knowledges, rebirth, Kamma, and then finally the Four Noble Truths, which is like uh, insight into non-self and dependent origination and these kind of things. So, so the knowledge of the Buddha and then the conduct of the Buddha. Yeah? He is endowed with knowledge and conduct. And uh, it's kind of interesting that the Buddha puts these things together. Yeah, so what does it mean that the Buddha is endowed with conduct? Well, it means that that knowledge that the Buddha has, it has consequences for how the Buddha behaves. Yeah, this is really what it is about. Once you have that insight into the natural reality, you're not just like an ordinary person anymore. You become different, you behave differently. I don't know if you have seen those scallywags on uh, on. Um, the internet who claim to be arahants. I've seen some of those scallywags. <laughs> Very quite common, yeah, especially in especially in America, I think. I think it's, there's something about America which makes people go really nuts. I don't know what it is about America. But <laughs> and and you find these people who have done some meditation retreats and they had some kind of good insights, yeah, and yeah, I'm an arahant, yeah. And you read there kind of, I've never really read, I just feel a sense of aversion towards all of that. But you, if you go to the blog, they, you know, they have at the top of the blog, name so-and-so, Arahant. Yeah, it's, like, it's like a PhD or something like that. And then they explain what, they, what happened. Yeah, I went on this retreat and I had some really profound insight. It was pretty cool, but then I had to go back to work again afterwards. Yeah, so now I'm back to work and hanging out with my wife and doing the dishes and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's like nothing has changed. Yeah, you had this insight, and then the life is exactly the same afterwards. But no, that is not actually what happens. If you have real insight into these teachings, you are transformed. Your psychology is transformed. Yeah, you have eliminated aspects of the mind that have always been there. You have eliminated ill will. There's no anger there. You have eliminated all desire. There's no desire anymore. You have el eliminated all delusion. This is all gone, completely gone. And if you ask these guys, they'll say, yeah, yeah, the text, you can't really rely on them fully, yeah, so a little bit of ill will is okay here. Yeah. No, it's not okay. <laughs> so it kind of, it, it's kind of amazing, the kind of conceit sometimes that we can <laughs> see in people. Kind of astonishing, yeah. And so you are transformed because these deep-rooted defilements of the mind, they are gone. Yeah, once and for all, they're out. And if you have no ill will, what does that mean? It means you're always going to be kind. It means you're always going to be friendly. You're always going to have compassion and metta and understanding for people. It means that you always want to renounce. It means that you don't have no greed anymore. It means that you want to have a minimum of things because you find things to be oppressive because they just clog up your life. Yeah. So a, a liberated person, arahant, and also they have no delusion, it means that you have clarity of mind at all times. So there's something very powerful about someone, if an arahant. If you are in the presence, you should feel that something is different. You should feel, wow, there's something really amazing here. In fact, this is one of the ways that we get faith in these teachings, because we see people who are really unique and different from what we're used to. This is the power of these things. And I always, I feel it really kind of despairing when you hear people say, oh yeah, I have a lot of faith in this person. And you ask why? Well, because they do crazy things, yeah? And, and they kind of, they, they have a lot of crazy wisdom. No, you don't have crazy wisdom. You're either crazy or you're wise, not both. Yeah. And I've heard monks say these kind of things, yeah, oh yeah, no, yeah, he, he was a real kind of crew and he kind of, he, you know, he, uh, he, when, when people do a wrong thing, he gives them a punch. I think, no, you don't give people a punch if you're a crew and if you are really enlightened, you, you are kind all the time. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a real punch, it was just pretending to be angry, no. <laughs> people make up any kind of excuse for these things to be acceptable. So this is beautiful because it means we have the ability to judge who is enlightened. 
If you drink heaps of alcohol and get drunk, you're not enlightened, etc., etc., etc. So this is the beautiful thing about it. So be, says, be, use your intelligence. Don't allow yourself to be led astray by dodgy characters and dubious spiritual leaders in the world. There's so much badness happening in the spiritual world, including in the Buddhist spiritual world. Yeah, lots of dodgy teachers, so be on the outlook. Don't be gullible, be intelligent, be wise. Trust your own judgment. If the spiritual teacher tells you, oh yeah, you can, you know, trust me, this is just, this is for your own good that I'm doing this, uh, don't buy it. It is never for your own good, it's always for the good of the spiritual teacher. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just saying these things because I sometimes find it so terrible. Uh, so many bad things being done in the name of Buddhism, in the name of spiritual progress. Uh, and because we tend to put people on the pedestal uh, who are enlightened or whatever, because we do that, we fall for their, their evil, bad conduct. Yeah? This is the reality. Anyway, don't want to talk too much about those things because they're not all that inspiring. So just... Uh, Okay, so you accomplished knowledge and conduct wholly. This is the sugato. Yeah, sugato is uh, one of these words that are quite uh, difficult to translate. Uh, uh, it literally means something like well gone, and it's actually translated as such in the early Buddhist translations into English, well gone. Uh, I think it is. Um, related to the word sugati. Yeah, sugati means a good destination. So, for example, you say that people, when they die, they have dugati or sugati, bad destination or good destination. Yeah, and sugato is very much related to that. Uh, so I take it to mean someone who has gone to a good destination. That's what I would see it as. Uh, but the highest kind of good destination, not a destination on rebirth, uh, but the destination in this very life. So holy, yeah, Okay, Bhante Sujato, I'll accept that one. Uh, I, <laughs> so that, that is, uh, I think, yeah, it's okay. Knower of the world. So what does that mean? Knower of the world. Well, what that means, of course, it means all the Buddhist ideas of the world, the idea of rebirth and the whole kind of cosmos and kamma and all of these kind of things. You have a full understanding of the world. The idea, again, is that unless you have a full understanding of something, you cannot make good decisions. Your decisions rely on having a good understanding of things. If you don't have a full understanding, you're going to make bad decision by default. If you have wrong view, yeah, you're going to head off in the wrong way. If you think the Buddhist society of Victoria is in, uh, what is another suburb in, in Melbourne? Uh, I don't Correct. know. Torak. If you think it's in Torak, you're going to have Dukkha because you're going to go to the wrong suburb. It's in East Malvern. Yeah? This is wrong view. So you don't never come here, never get a chance to hear this beautiful sutta. <laughs> this beautiful sutta. Yeah? So wrong view always leads to Dukkha. This is kind of the point of wrong view. Yeah? So you have to know what's going on. Only then can you make decisions. So you have this full understanding of the world. But what does that actually mean? Why is it important to know about all of these uh, uh, realms and all of these kind of alternative rebirths and kamma? What is actually the point of all of that? Uh, and the point of all of that is what I mentioned yesterday, that right view really comes down to one thing. Uh, it comes down to understanding happiness and suffering. Uh, that is really what right view is about. Uh, you have to have right view about where to find happiness, contentment, satisfaction, all of these positive things that what we are interested in, and you have to look at right about where you find dissatisfaction, where you find problems, where you find suffering, where you find all the things we don't want to have, depression and sadness and all of that. And then you separate them out, and then when you know that fully, then you can start practicing for the happiness and avoid the suffering. Yeah, yeah? that is what really what right view is about. And so a lot of the preliminary right view are very simple things in life. Understanding the limits, like I said yesterday, of the sensory world and understanding why meditation is different, why removing yourself from that sensory world, you can find much more satisfaction and happiness. This is like a preliminary kind of right view that is very, very valuable because it helps you in your meditation practice. This is why right view has a direct effect on your meditation experience. You understand where happiness is and where suffering is found. 
And to really understand happiness and suffering, it is not enough just to know the human experience. You have to know whole potential for suffering and happiness in all of existence. Can I, I be reborn in a beautiful heavenly realm where I can hang out forever after? You've got to figure it out, right? And the Buddha figures out, says, no, there is no such heavenly realm. Okay, forget about it. Yeah, it's not interesting. If you can't hang out there forever and you can kind of be happy, a bit like the Christian idea of God hanging out with God forever, I'm not sure if that's even interesting, to be honest. But anyway, that's, that's, that's what they say in the, according to Christianity. But So there is no such thing, right? It doesn't even exist. Everything is temporary. Everything depends on cause and effects. Take away the cause, the effect is gone. So you just keep on cycling, going around and around and around. You understand the limits of the happiness of the world. You understand the suffering of the world. Then you can make a decision what to do. And the Buddha talks about three qualities in the suttas, what they call the asada, the adinava, and the nisarana. The nisarana is sitting right here. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the escape, so listen to, listen to Ajahn Nisarana. So, so the asada is the positive side of things, right? It's the pleasure in things. The adinava is the downside, the danger or the disadvantage in things. And so you weigh up the asada and the adinava. How much, how much good is then is how much bad is there in this? Yeah, and you understand. You understand why you are attracted to the sensory world, and then you understand the danger in that sensory world. And then you look at the meditation world. You understand the pleasure, and you understand the downside. And then when you understand these things, then you understand the escape because you need you need to escape from these things. And this is really what this is about: knower of the world, understanding the. Uh, the pleasure, the attraction of these things, and the downside of these things, and then the escape, because ultimately it is all unsatisfactory. Uh, Knower of the world, understanding happiness and suffering here. Uh. These are just my ideas, yeah? So if you think it's nonsense, that's okay. You, you can. <laughs> but uh, it's not just my idea. Like a lot, most of it is just the Buddha's ideas, probably, because I've read too many suttas and been brainwashed by the Buddha. So. <laughs> Okay, so supreme guide of those who wish to be trained. Anuttaro Pudesadhamma Sarati, or the supreme teacher of those who are tameable. Anuttaro Pudesadhamma. Dhamma means like to tame someone. Yeah, it's the idea that we are a bit wild. <laughs> Do you feel wild sometimes? Sometimes when the mind is out of control, you feel a bit wild, yeah? It's like the mind cannot be tamed. You sit on your cushion, you try to watch the breath, and there's no way you're going to be watching the breath. The mind says, ha ha, no way you're going to watch the breath today, yeah? Because the mind is out of control. Have anyone had that experience ever? <laughs> it, right? It's just the way it are. So you, tameable people. The idea of taming is actually kind of makes sense. And of course, if tameable here means at the very least, you have to have some confidence in the Buddha's teachings. Uh, having got confidence in the Buddha's teachings, well, then you're definitely not tameable, that's for sure. So that's the first thing. Yeah, You have to be someone who takes an interest in these teachings. And then the Buddha is the unsurpassed teacher of tameable people. So if you are here, it probably means you are tameable. You agree? Yeah. Anyone here is not tameable? Yeah. <laughs> you are tameable, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have interest in the spiritual teachings. Yeah. So you're already tameable. Yeah. I am. So if you are tameable, then the Buddha is the unsurpassed teacher. Yeah. Why? In what sense is the Buddha the unsurpassed teacher? And uh, there's two aspects that I always like to talk about the Buddha, and one is the wisdom aspect. Uh, yeah, and the wisdom aspect is precisely this idea that the Buddha has a full understanding of happiness and suffering in the world. That is the Buddha's wisdom. And the Buddha knows that this is what everyone is after. Everyone wants to be happy, content, at ease, yeah, free of 
afflictions, free your problems, free of depression and sadness and sorrow and pain and all of these kind of things. Uh, everyone is like that. Uh, if there's anyone here who prefers to be depressed and w wants to have more sorrow and pain, this is not for you. Uh, yeah. So you, you, may, you may leave <laughs> if you wish. <laughs> but no one, no one really wants that. Everyone wants to have a life which is meaningful and happy and contented. And right, this is just... Why is that? Because we feel. And there's some feelings we like, some feelings we don't like. It's really as simple as that. The happy feelings are good, the bad feelings are bad. So the Buddha has that full insight into the nature, what it means to be a human being, means to be any being. And because he has that insight, he has this beautiful gift to give to each one of us, where we can understand in our own life what is really worthwhile and what is not, and how to pursue that. It turns out that this idea of happiness and suffering actually is incredibly profound. It sounds very easy when, I, when, I say, when you say it like this, yeah, you just understand the difference between happiness and suffering, but actually it is extraordinarily profound. It involves things like non-self, yeah, and that sort of thing. Yeah. But ultimately that's what it is about, the distinction between happiness and suffering. Yeah. It kind of makes sense. But then there's another aspect of the Buddha, which is very powerful and beautiful. And that is the aspect that the Buddha taught out of compassion. Yeah. Why does the Buddha teach? And um, uh, this is uh, one of those things about the Buddha, which makes the Buddha a very powerful teacher. Because the vast majority of teachers in the world, they have like a vested interest. They teach because they are, get a salary. They teach because they want to be famous. They teach, they have some kind of ulterior motive for why they teach, very, very common in the world. And I think the only teacher in human history who has no ulterior motive, at least as a starting, starting a religion, is the Buddha. Because the Buddha has given up the sense of self. He has given up any interest in that material realm. He wants to have as little as possible. Yeah, He doesn't want people to give him all this excess stuff. And if he dies tomorrow, he'd be perfectly happy. There's no vested interest for the Buddha. If you come and you say you want to be the disciple of the Buddha, the Buddha doesn't say, yay, a disciple, yeah, I would be great to have a disciple. The Buddha says, no, don't really want the disciples. Oh, okay, I'll teach you anyway because I have the answer to the meaning of life, yeah? He doesn't really want you as a disciple. He wants to push you away, yeah? yeah go away, you're just a burden for me. Remember the Buddha, what he said soon after his awakening, yeah? He said that, don't really want to teach, yeah? Because actually teaching is a burden. People want to understand, right? Why should I teach all these silly people who have no don't understand what's going on. <laughs> That's how the Buddha thinks. And it's because he has no interest really in being a teacher. And what that means is that the only reason why the Buddha teaches us is because of compassion. He has nothing, no benefit out of the teaching at all. Yeah, so only out of compassion. It's a pure gift that he gifts to humanity when he does his teachings. And what that means is that when you read the suttas, when you listen to the word of the Buddha, you can trust it 100%. He teaches only things that are relevant for us, to benefit us. There's nothing there to benefit himself whatsoever. He does it only for us. So when you know that the Buddha has the deepest possible insight into happiness and suffering, and he teaches purely out to benefit for the listener. It's a very powerful combination. And when you feel that, here is someone who is only doing this out of caring for humanity, to do something beautiful to help us out. When you understand that, then you listen when he speaks. Yeah, you think, here is someone who is trying to help me. You listen. Because you know that they care, they want to help you out, and you take the word incredibly seriously because of the wisdom and compassion that lies behind it. And there's one thing I always like to say, and you may think that you are not really a disciple of the Buddha because the Buddha lived two and a half thousand years ago, and you live now, yes, the Buddha is kind of irrelevant, he didn't know about us, but that would also be wrong. And one of the things that I like to point out with the suttas is that when the Buddha started teaching, yeah, he set in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. 
What is the wheel of the Dhamma? The wheel of the Dhamma is like the teaching rolling on in the world, yeah, rolling from one culture to another culture, eventually ending up in Australia, even in the, in the Western world as well, like going on from one place to another, starting India, spreading over the entire globe, rolling from one time to another time, yeah, from one century to another, from one millennia to another, rolling on in the world. And the Buddha says, he sets in motion the wheel of the Dhamma, which means that the Buddha knew when he started out that this is going to be a teaching which rolls on into the world for a long time into the future, from one culture to another one. And that is why when you see the Buddha teaches, he teaches in a way which is very general, in a way where everyone can understand what this is about. These are about universal aspects of human beings that everyone can relate to. That's why a place like the BSV is so multicultural. Yeah, we come from all kinds of backgrounds. And this is the beauty of a good Buddha society, that it is multicultural, because it should bring everyone together, because it speaks to the commonality in what it means to be a human being. Yeah, the Buddha speaks to every one of us. And this is one of the great differences between the suttas of the Buddha and, for example, if you look at the pre-Buddhist philosophies of India, the Upanishads, and you will feel that you are drawn into Indian culture because they are very culturally specific texts that fit into Buddhist society, sorry, into Hindu society. Very, very different from the Buddhist texts, which are about psychology, about what it means to be a human being, about how to develop your mind, how to be kind and all of these kind of things. This has a universal feel to it, whereas most religions have a parochial feel to them. It belongs to a specific culture at a specific time, but it's very hard to translate across the world. So the Buddha knew when he gave these teachings, I have to teach in a way that is relevant to everyone. Yeah, where everyone has a chance to understand. He taught in a way that was universal, about universal qualities of human and any kind of existence. And he taught in a way which was translatable across culture. And he knew that there will be people listening to these teachings a long time in the future. There will be people at the BSV. Yeah? Do you think he knew that? <laughs> I don't know, maybe he did. I'm not sure. But even if he didn't, he knew that there will be situations like this. Yeah? Where people will listen to these teachings two and a half thousand years from now. So he thought about us. Isn't that powerful? The Buddha thought about us. He knew that we would be here listening to his teachings. So it's not some kind of idea that the Buddha is our teacher. It's not some kind of nice way of thinking. It is literally true because the Buddha did have people in mind for the future. Yeah. So he spoke these words in a way that are not culturally specific, that are universally applicable, because he knew people would be listening to these things in the future. So when you read these texts, read it with that in mind. This is the Buddha speaking to you, to me, to every one of us. Yeah, this is not some kind of make-believe. This is actually the reality of the situation, because the Buddha knew this is what's going to happen. And when you feel that the Buddha is talking to you when you read this, think, imagine that the Buddha is talking to you, because that's actually what's going on. It kind of changes the situation. It's no longer some kind of black ink on paper. It's no longer a fairy tale from the past. It's no longer a philosophy that died out a long time ago. It is the reality of the Buddha teaching you here and now. You are in the presence of the Buddha when you read these words. Because the Buddha is the Dhamma. The Buddha is these teachings. He is the living embodiment of the teachings of the Dhamma. And this is what comes out of this paper. So make it real. Yeah, Try to understand who this person is. And as you do, then uh, it becomes alive. It becomes real. You get a feeling for this. It is no longer a dead thing belonging to the past, but it's something alive of the present moment. And then it really starts to have an effect on each one of us. <clears throat> so... Um, 
didn't get quite as far as I had hoped, but anyway, that's the way it usually goes, so that's fine. <laughs> so, uh, wonderful. So, we will uh, stop there because it has just turned three o'clock, yeah. and we're going to have a Q&A session uh, this evening at 6.30. Uh, there is supposed to be, is there any interviews today or starting tomorrow? Uh, is there going to be any interviews today or starting tomorrow? Starting today, okay, no, no, hold, no messing around, just gonna get on with it, okay. <laughs> okay, good. So there will be some interviews at four o'clock and then there will be the uh, guided meditation uh, Q&A at 6.30 this evening. And in the meantime, please continue enjoying yourself and we'll see you back later on. Let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.